Paul Gilbert, lead pastor here. So glad you're with us. If you're joining us online, so glad you're there as well. You just need to know those were not stock photos. Those were real live shots okay, from the sunset service. And we say, but Pastor Paul, why was it so dark? Wait for it. It's the sunset service. Okay, anyway, we'd love to have you guys here 6.30 um, tonight. Seriously, it is just one of my favorite times of the week. It is kind of old school church. We just gather up. You have community groups that are out there tailgating, pre-gaming. They're, they're some better than others, I might add. But, but nonetheless, they're, they're out there doing it. We're singing. We're coming together, worshiping, walking through God's Word, through the book of James. Love to have you um, tonight. And the weather is cooperating. Thank goodness. Anyway, uh, but this morning, we're in Genesis chapter 44. Why don't you turn there? You know, it's hard to believe we started our, our journey through Genesis um, some almost two years ago, about a year and a half ago, in the winter of 2019. And believe it or not, we only have six weeks left in this series. And this will take us all the way up to Thanksgiving and Advent season. Now, one of the things you need to know as we're diving into God's Word today, I, I, I read, but I, lo- I love reading fiction. Uh, so whether it's Clancy or Tolkien or Lewis or Rowling, um, I love fiction, which means I have to be really careful when I read fiction because I have a hard time putting fiction down. And that's what good novels do, right? Um, they hook you. They, they draw you in. And we are right in the middle of a page turner here in Genesis, aren't we? Except this is nonfiction. And this is one of the most compelling stories ever told. Here we have the patriarchs. And again, this is the family that God has given the promises of the nations to. He told Abraham, I'm going to build you into a great nation. I'm going to put you in a land. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to raise up the seed, the Messiah from you. I'm going to bless the world through through you. I'm going to have an eternal covenant, an eternal kingdom. But here we see in Genesis 37, the tribes of Israel are in danger. And as... Um, Jack Nicholson playing Colonel Jessup would say they are in grave danger, right? There's not another kind because famine has hit the land. And the brothers um, are sitting around looking at one another. They don't know what to do. The royal family is in serious, real jeopardy of being exterminated. And they are sent by their father to Egypt to find food. Now, what's interesting is that Egypt is one and a half times the size of the state of California. And they go to Egypt, and who do they happen to run into? Well, what do you know? Their long-lost brother, Joseph. Now, of course, Joseph, 20 years prior, had been betrayed by these very brothers, sold into slavery, shipped off. They had lied, covered it up, broken their dad's heart, pretended like Joseph had been eaten by wild animals. And here they find Joseph, but they don't recognize him. But guess what? He recognizes them. And here they are, hands out, in desperate need of salvation and grace and grain. Little do they know that this second most powerful man in the nation, in the world, is in fact the brother they have betrayed. And he is the only one that can save them. What will he do? Now, this is just, I mean, you have to, this is intriguing, right? This is a page turner. And as, we, as we've seen, he sends them home with food, 
But he also sends them home with a test because he makes them leave Simeon with him as a hostage. See, Joseph knows this famine is not a year, not a two. It's going to be seven years. And if they, those brothers want more food, they're going to have to come down, back down to Egypt. And he wants them to bring Benjamin, his long lost true brother. And as we've seen, they spent two years. This is where we left off last week. Two years back in Canaan. But now the grain has run out. And Jacob's like, you've got to go back. You've got to find it. And they're like, but we're not going back unless we bring Benjamin. And, and in a stunning uh, role reversal, we see Judah last week offers up his life as a surety, as a guarantee, as a deposit for the life of Benjamin. Now is the decisive moment. It's the decisive moment. It's the fulcrum. It's the, it's, the, it's the pivotal point of the whole story. They have now returned to Egypt, and they've come back to, to Joseph, and he's treated them like royalty. They've been feasting. Um, they've got Simeon back, and they're getting ready to go back home and ride home triumphantly. But God has yet one more test for them. And so we're going to divide up our passage this morning into two sections. I'm going to read the first section and we'll talk about it. Then I'll read the second section and we'll talk about it. But the first, the first section, verse 17 verses, we're calling Joseph's strategic testing. And so let me read and then we're going to unpack it. Here we go. Then he commanded, this is Joseph, the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. And put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practiced divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. And he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. 
But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Let's pray. Lord, let us be able to see, give us the eyes to see your divine initiative saving grace in this story. Father, we are just like the brothers. We are blinded by sin. We are walking oftentimes in the consequences of our choices. And the situation looks hopeless. But yet, Lord, because you love us in Christ Jesus, you have a redemptive plan for us. And we need you this morning to open our eyes to it. Lord, we ask that you would unpack this word into our hearts this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Now let me dip into the Harry Potter universe just for a second. If, if Joseph were placed by the sorting hat into one of the four houses of Hogwarts, he would undoubtedly be, what, a Slytherin, right? Sneaky. Now if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's never too late to read those books, okay? I was 36 when I started. But there, here is Joseph, sneaky, crafty, cunning, clever. Joseph is engaging in some masterful spiritual strategy in this scene, and it is a final, make no mistake, a final strategic test. Now remember last week, Genesis 43, the brothers have feasted. They have Simon, Simeon with them. They're taking, they're going home with a full grain, uh, full sack of grain. Verse three tells us that they are sent off early in the morning. Here in this chapter, they are, listen, you got to think about how you would feel if you're the brothers. They're ready to ride, ride like the wind to be free again, right? Um, They've got such a long way to go. Never mind. Oh, 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 keep going. They're done with Egypt. I mean, mean, they are not going to let the door hit themselves on the backside on the way home. But little do they know that Joseph had the steward deceptively plant Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's bag. You see, 22 years prior to this, Joseph had been sold for what? 20 pieces of silver. Hmm. What's Joseph up to? Let's keep going. Verse 4, it says, the steward rides out, again, catches up to the brothers, accuses them of stealing the cup, and they are genuinely dumbfounded. They may be guilty of a lot of things in their life, but this is one of those things they're really not guilty of. They're dumbfounded, and and they're saying, why in the world would we travel all the way back from Canaan and return the money we found in our sacks only to steal this little silver cup? What, what, What would make you think that we would do this? In fact, we are so sure of our innocence. We have such a clean conscience with this. We pledge our lives. If you find this cup, kill us. Take us as slaves. We are innocent. And you can imagine the drama of how each of those bags were being searched. I mean, the steward here, he's a great game show host, right? He he starts with the oldest, gets him to open his bag, and they work their way all the way down to the end. And, And you know that as they keep going, the brothers are having this palpable sense of relief, okay? Because, of course, I mean, Zebulun or Issachar, I mean, maybe they were still the cop, right? But not Benjamin, okay? Come on, the golden boy, Benjamin, But imagine their relief turning to absolute horror at finding in the bag this cup of the very person that they were most desperate to protect. And this is utter despair. 
right? When it says in verse 10 that they tore their clothes, I mean, this is a symbolic, I mean, this is like what you do when you find out that someone has died. Remember, what did Job do when they told him all his sons and daughters died? He tore his clothes. They tear their clothes. In their minds, life is over. They are going down. Benjamin is going down. They're going to be the slaves. And here, you know, what a triumphant ride out of the city this must have been. In what despair, riding back in only an hour or two later. And it says in verse 14, look there, that Joseph is waiting for them, of course, because he's put all this together. And he confronts them, and they tell them, and he says to them, don't, don't you guys know that I practice divination? No, no, what is up with all that? What is up with this cup of divination? Well, a couple of things you need to know. Number one, we already know that Joseph doesn't think much of divination or, the, or tarot card reading or that little eight ball thing that you shake up and ask it a question and it comes back around. Okay, that's, that's not what Joseph is doing. He's already told Pharaoh none of that stuff works, only God, right? This is all part of his ruse. See, Joseph is not ready to identify himself, to reveal himself yet to his brothers. And so, lest they suspect that he's the one that planted the cup, he's playing along. He's saying, well, you, of course, I, 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 because of divination, I know that you guys stole my cup. And so, so, this is part of his ongoing game. He wants them to think that's how he knows that they took it. Now, it's interesting, Judah's response to this, he doesn't even protest, does he? He is dead to rights. And he acknowledges, here in verse 16, he's like, I, I, we know we're, we're done for. We are just throwing ourselves at your mercy. Now, look at verse 17. I think it's the pivotal verse in this section. I think it's the hinge on which everything turns. Listen to what Joseph says to him. And boy, what a temptation, what a test this would have been for the brothers. Look what he says. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose cup, whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. In other words, no, no, Judah, all, all you guys are good. I didn't find the cup in your bag. You guys are innocent. Head on back to Canaan. All I want is the guilty party. All I want is Benjamin. He's the only one who has to say, now, do you see what he's done here? Masterfully, right? Joseph has placed the brothers in precisely the situation they had been in 22 years ago. Do you remember that? Then they also had an opportunity. Are we going to abandon Joseph or are we not? Are we going to break our dad's heart or are we not? And we know how they chose. They left Joseph in that pit. They sold him into slavery. They went back to Canaan. They lied to their father. They broke his heart. And they let him have a broken heart for 22 years. And here they are faced with the same choice again. What will they do? What will they do? But see, the, the stakes are so much higher now. Do you see what a, a, a genius test this is? Now, it's their very freedom that's at stake. They can just walk away. They can have bags full of grain. They've got Simeon. They've, they're rid of this other favored son. Their dad's at the end of his life. Who cares 
What happens to dad? This is the ultimate task. What would they do? Now, let me interject this at this point. If you are having a hard time ethically, morally, sort of wrapping your mind around what Joseph is doing here. In other words, you think Joseph's being very cruel. Joseph's being very mean. Joseph is being very unloving. Maybe we need to expand, you need to expand your understanding of the nature of biblical love. You see, culturally, Love is basically defined as whatever makes you feel good. Lots of yeses, rare noes, unless it benefits me somehow. And, and by the way, we cannot help but as a people to breathe that cultural air. We live in this world. Of course, we're going to be influenced by it. Of course, we're going to be impacted by it. But yet, that is not how the Bible defines love. Romans twelve nine. Here's what Paul says, let love be genuine. How? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. You see, Joseph wants the brother's love to be genuine. And in order for their love to be genuine, the evil has to be abhorred. It has to be rooted out. Joseph is getting ready to love them Proverbs 26 style. Proverbs 26, 5 says this, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Let me explain what that means. Guys, if someone is living a secret life full of secret sin, maybe they're, they're having multiple inappropriate relationships. Um, they are someone who is skilled in the art of deception. You can't engage that person as if they are going to tell you the truth about what they're doing. Okay? That's, that's the whole point. If you ask him, hey, are you doing this? What's he going to say? Hmm. You know what? I've been living a secret life for some 20 years now. Let me tell you about the inappropriate relationships I've had. Let, let, let me tell you about all the people's hearts that I've broken. No. What's he going to do? He's going to lie. Because that's what a deceptive person does. And so you have to be wise, strategic. You have to engage in a little bit of what shall we call, what Joseph is doing here, righteous deception. I had a pastor friend in another city. Was involved in a church discipline situation where this man was caught lying and deceiving. And he had said all the things that you say, right, when you're caught in that. And he was feigning being sorry, but they suspected, you know, there's something that doesn't pass the sniff test here, right? We're not getting the whole picture. And so they did their own little investigation. Trust but verify, Ronald Reagan said, right? And they had a crucial meeting. And they came down, they said, you know, no, no, tell us, is, is this everything? Because if there is something else you haven't told us, now's the time, right? I mean, come on, the window of mercy and grace is now open if you tell us now, it, it's going to go so much better than if you don't tell us now. And you break trust again, and a person was like, oh, yes, yes, I've told you everything, and I've been honest, and all these sorts of things. And, but little did he know they had done their own investigation. And then they said, well, well what about this? He's like, oh, well, you know, I, I forgot about that, right? I forgot about that one. And they go through the whole thing, and they're like, okay, now, is there anything else? Tell us now. And that 
repeats itself two, three, four times. Why were they doing that? See, instead of blindly trusting where trust had already been lost, they had to find out, is this man's repentance true? Or is this just another part of his game? You see, for there to be true reconciliation, biblical reconciliation, Jesus tells us there has to be repentance. You see, what would have happened if Joseph had come up to them and said, hey guys, I really know who you are. Tell me, are you sorry for what you did? What are they going to say? Hmm. No. What are they going to say? Of course they're going to say we're sorry. But are they saying that because they're afraid of consequences? Is this a worldly sorrow that leads to death? How does Joseph know? How do we know? If, is this a godly sorrow that leads to repentance? Because one of the, the key features of true repentance and true confession is coming forward with information that was previously undisclosed and not merely discovered. In other words, if, if the person is just sort of concocting the story to meet every piece of evidence, that new piece of evidence that comes to the light, is it just this, it just kind of, this truth just sort of slips out and is discovered per chance. Guys, that's not true repentance. True repentance, true confession is coming forward and saying, as Judah does, I am the man. This is me. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing forward into the light what God has begun to disclose in my heart. Gordon, Gordon Wenham says this, Joseph cannot be certain that they are really sorry for their earlier sin. And he puts them in a situation that replicates their situation 22 years earlier as closely as possible. He therefore invites them to return home without Benjamin, who will stay in Egypt as his slave. Do you see that? This is the supreme test. Is this, is this for reals? Or, or is this just show? Is this just words? And Joseph, by the grace of God, is bearing down in his life. And let me just say something, folks. If you find yourself in the middle of this kind of situation, um, which can be very complex and, and, and difficult to sort out, we would love to walk alongside of you in prayer and counsel and wisdom but if you are someone who has been on the receiving end of this, maybe you're there right now, and you just feel like your whole world is collapsing. You just feel like God's just bearing into your soul. Can I just encourage you with something? This is the grace of God. This is the love of God. God doesn't discipline those whom he does not, who are not as part of his family. God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those that he wants to conform into his image. And I believe this is what he's doing with the lives of these brothers. I think this is what he's doing with Judah, as we're going to see. Let's keep reading. Second point, Judah's substitutionary transformation. We're back in verse 18. Let's keep reading. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord. Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? 
And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then he said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. Stop just for a second. Do you know this is the first time in 22 years Joseph finds out what people back home really thought happened to him? Can you imagine? Oh, they think I was torn to pieces. Oh, that's why he hasn't come looking for me. Oh, I, I, it, 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 makes, it didn't make sense 22 years ago now, Lord, but it, it makes sense now. Verse 29, if you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, here are the two crucial verses. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain, he's talking about himself, instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now, commentators have said that this speech by Judah is not only maybe the finest in all of Genesis, it's clearly one of the finest in all of the Old Testament. See, it's here that Judah emerges once and for all out of the shadows of his brother. He is now the spiritual leader. He is now the rightful heir of the patriarchs. But boy, if you've been with us in this series, you know it's been a long and treacherous road for Judah, has it not? Not only did Judah sell Joseph in the first place to start this whole process. But he went on to to be a callous, heinous old man who kept his sons from marrying Tamar and in fact thought she was a prostitute, impregnator, tried to cover it up. And we saw that that was a pivotal moment in the life of Joseph, right? That was when God began to awaken the conscience of Judah. That's when God began to awaken the conscience of Judah because Judah said, she's more worthy than me. He said, I am the man. I I have done this thing. And we see that this began this whole series of transformations in the life of Judah. We saw it last week when he pledged to his father, hey, I will, I will give my life as a down payment for the life of Benjamin. But now Judah is placed to the ultimate test. Judah, is all that words? Is that just words? 
are, as we've been studying on Sunday nights, are, are you just a, a hearer of the word, Judah? Or are you a doer? Look at verse 16. Judah says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. I don't think he's talking about this cup. He knows they're not guilty of the cup. What is he talking about? He's talking about this thing with Joseph that happened 22 years before, the thing he's tried to crowd out of his conscience, but he, he just can't do it. He's basically saying, my heart is being laid bare here. My sin is being exposed. He believes that God is bearing in and uncovering his sin. And guess what? He's right. But he's confessing and he's repenting. And one of the things that should really encourage us about Judah's transformation, both in our personal walk, both in those that we deal with, and walk with is that oftentimes repentance can be a long process. You know, we have this notion that just like salvation, I was lost and now I'm found that, that that's the way repentance always works. It doesn't always work that way. And I can't remember Ligon Duncan or Kent Hughes used this illustration. Our sin is like an onion and you just keep peeling back layers, right? until you can get to the bottom of this. We, we, we walk through our life and things we weren't even aware of. God makes known to us because he loves us and he's pressing in. And we can be encouraged by Judah's transformation that it takes some years here before God finally gets to the root. And sometimes repentance works that way. But Judah's repentance here leads him to do something extraordinary. He offers himself up in the place of Benjamin. Now, something, I mean, something we have to remember here, right? Something we have to remember is that Judah doesn't know who he's talking to. Judah doesn't know the end of the story. Judah doesn't have the perspective of the narrator. He doesn't know that this is really Joseph. He doesn't know that Joseph is going to extend the olive branch and everything's going to be great. And we're going to be talking about it 3,500 years later. Judah doesn't know any of this. All he knows is what's the next right thing for me to do in my repentance. I gave my word to my dad. I gave my word to my brother. My life for his. Now, why does he do this? He does love Benjamin, and and clearly all the brothers love Benjamin. When Judah is speaking on his behalf, he's obviously speaking on all of their behalves. Clearly, God has worked a change here, a work of grace, because they're not hightailing it back to Egypt. They, They didn't send Benjamin back with the servant all by himself. Clearly, God is doing a work here. But I think what really tugs at Judah's heart here is his love for his father. Think about this. For 22 years, his father has lived in agony. And Judah is saying, I'm not going to let it happen again. You see, all this sibling rivalry stuff, by the way, Four Oaks, it's not about the brothers. It's about the dad. See, deep down, they resented the dad. They, they, They were embittered towards him. And you can see here that Judah has finally come to peace with this. He loves his father in spite of his favoritism. 
He forgives his father. His transformation is complete. My life for his. I don't know what the rest of repentance looks like, but I know this. This is what God is calling me to do right now. Alter says this, 22 years earlier, Judah engineered the selling of Joseph into slavery. Now he is prepared to offer himself as a slave so that the other son of Rachel can be set free. 22 years earlier, he stood with his brothers and silently watched when the bloody tunic they had brought to Jacob sent their father in a fit of anguish. Now he is willing to do anything in order not to have to see his father suffer that way again. That's true repentance. And here's the irony. Genesis is full of them. Judah, who was guilty, offered up his life for Benjamin, who was innocent. But his act of substitution, we know, is the precursor to the greatest act of substitution. When Judah's son, his seed, his descendants, some 1,500 years later, we sang about him this morning, Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This was not the guilty giving up his life for the innocent. No, the rightful heir, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, was the innocent giving up his life for the guilty. And just as Judah offered up as his own person surety to his father Jacob for for Benjamin's sake, Now he offers himself up as a substitute to pacify the wrath of Joseph. And it is a righteous wrath. It is a a righteous punishment if Joseph chooses to extend it. And And Judah says, not him, but me. Folks, do you see now where the gospel is on every page of Holy Scripture and in Genesis. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What is a propitiation? When you propitiate someone's anger, you're doing something to pacify them. You're doing something to make things right, to appease them, to placate them. You are putting something forward, sort of as a peace offering, right? Judah is putting himself forward to Joseph to appease him. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, put himself forward to God the innocent for the guilty, to appease God's rightful wrath and punishment. Because we don't like to talk this way in these days and times, but if, if we miss this, then we miss the gospel. God's justice and wrath is rightly being poured out upon the world. It is rightly being poured about, about upon us because of our sinfulness, our wretchedness, our hardened hearts. Someone will pay the penalty for our sin. And Jesus says, here's the gospel. I'm going to put myself forward to God so that his wrath is not directed to you, but it's directed to me. 
that I satisfy the just requirements of the law. Me innocent for you guilty, if you would only turn to me. If you would only trust me, if you would only accept this righteous sacrifice and substitute in your place. And that's the free offer of the gospel. You see, there's going to be one day when they're sitting around telling this story, just like we are telling it right now. And to say, do you, do you see that, son? Do you see that, daughter? Judah put himself forward, having no idea that one day his own son, his own descendant, would put himself forward in our place as a substitute. And we look at that and say, how in the world will Joseph respond to this offer? And don't blame me, but the writer, the people who divided the Bible into chapters, that's chapter 45. We're going to have to do that next week, okay? But what we're going to see is that there's more than simply forgiveness. We're not going to count that against you, brothers. We're not going to kill you, okay? We're not going to, we're not going to enslave you. Just go on back to, to Canaan and do the best you can. No, no, no. We're going to see that God for God... God's grace and his mercy is far more amazing than we can ever dream or imagine. But come back next week and we'll see it together. Let's pray.